Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're looking at Germany. We now know the cast of candidates vying to succeed Angela Merkel this autumn. They want to succeed her, but can any of them escape from her shadow? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Joining us today, it's a pleasure to have back Hans Kudnani, who is a senior research fellow at Chatham House. He's the author of The Paradox of German Power. Hans, we've talked about Armin Laschet before, although he's quite a hard person to kind of hold in mind exactly who he is and what he stands for. But he has now been chosen. He's emerged from the mist as the CDU-CSU candidate for the elections in the autumn. I think it's fair to say that his candidacy hasn't been greeted with a fanfare of trumpets and hosannas. It's a little underwhelming. Is there a strategy here? Is there a party strategy to get this man elected? Because if there is, I'm not sure I can see what it is. Um, I'm not sure if there's a strategy exactly. I think they have been kind of making it up as they go along over the last few months. I guess, though, if there is a strategy, I kind of feel like this is this is repeating what I said in in the last podcast, but I feel like it's a continuation of the Merkel strategy insofar as Laschet is seen as the the candidate among the Christian Democrats who stood as being the closest to Merkel in terms of style and substance. There are some differences which we may want to get into later on in the discussion, but broadly he is seen as being the sort of Merkelite candidate and the most likely, I think, to sort of continue the type of centrist grand coalition type politics, even if there is a slight change in the the parties that are in the coalition. I think it will be a continuation of that sort of centrist style that Merkel has had for the last 15 years. Yeah, I don't think that there's a a strategy. I think that there's a, a response to what's become a deteriorating set of circumstances for the Christian Democrats that's got caught up in the federal politics of the party and the difficulties from the point of view of the Christian Democrats of having a candidate from the Christian Social Union as the Chancellor candidate. If we go back to the beginning of the year, there was still a narrative in Germany that Germany had done, in European terms at least, as well as any country. Obviously, there were countries in Asia that had done significantly better, but the German COVID story seemed more of a relative comparative success. What's happened since then, particularly obviously vaccine issues, has has really disturbed that narrative. And it was in this context then that the question of who was going to be the Chancellor played out. And as things have deteriorated in Germany in terms of the pandemic, the federal politics of Germany has in itself in dealing with the pandemic become much more fraught. And into that then you put this issue of having a Christian social union candidate essentially versus a Christian Democrat candidate in a situation politically in which the Christian Democrats have been, according to the opinion polls, losing support. So I don't think you would expect much strategy in that situation. As Hans says, it's the status quo or a version of the status quo anyway, but in much strained circumstances. Because I was wondering in a way if the strategy is 
this is pretty crude politics, but it seems to have some plausibility if you look at what's happened in Britain, for example. If the strategy is just the vaccine strategy in the sense that Lachette, though no one seems bubbling over with enthusiasm for him, he is the candidate that the majority of senior figures in the CDU seem most comfortable with or least uncomfortable with, certainly relative to the thought of going in with Serder and the CSU at the helm. There are a few months to go, and presumably over the summer, Germany, like the rest of Europe, is going to get its act together around the vaccines. There's a huge order that's just gone in with Pfizer. The European Union seems to be better placed to manage the next few months than it was the last few months, and Germany presumably will do it well. And if Boris Johnson's current fortunes, although there's a bit of a wobble at the moment at anything to go by, once you get a reasonable vaccine strategy in place and people start to feel more comfortable, more secure, start to look forward rather than look back or feel frozen, party in power reaps the benefits. Isn't that the strategy? I think it's probably a hope rather than a strategy. Yeah, and actually calling it a strategy is probably the wrong word. It's not particularly strategic. It's just, we'll come on to the Greens in a second, but given the polling looks pretty dire, Lachette is not in any sense charismatic. He doesn't look like someone who's going to sort of inject new energy. And yet political parties are not self-destructive. They don't pick candidates in the hope that they will lose. There must be some view of how this doesn't end badly. And that seems to me the, the most plausible way of constructing a narrative, let's call it, that gets you from here to September. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And it's worth remembering that when Merkel first became the leader of the CDU and candidate for chancellor, she was described in very similar ways to the way that we're talking about Laschet now. She sort of grew into the role and, and was never a politician who was particularly inspiring in terms of her rhetoric or had a very strong vision. In fact, when she first stood in 2005, she did have more of a vision. It was a broadly kind of neoliberal vision around structural reform and so on. She then quickly abandoned that precisely because it didn't work. So I think when I talked earlier about the sort of continuation of the Merkel approach, it is, I think, very much in terms of this kind of depoliticized approach to politics that Merkel represents and that's been quite effective in Germany in the last 15 years and, and has, I think, made Germany quite sort of post-democratic. And I think there has been a backlash against that. I think the emergence of the, the AFD is an expression of that, but it's still there still is a a consensus around that kind of politics in Germany. And Laschet, I think, will be hoping that he can continue that. The other thing that's maybe just worth adding is I think we do sometimes make this mistake of sort of over-personalising German politics. The system does work differently from the British system or, or even the American system. Uh, in particular, I mean, I think that the sense that you're voting for an individual that's not really how the, the German system works. You know, you have two votes, one for a, a candidate, local candidate, and one for a party. But in neither case are you really voting particularly for an individual as a chancellor in the way that you would in a US presidential election, for example. And often what happens at the end of the coalition negotiations is somewhat unpredictable and, and voters don't really have a direct impact on that necessarily. So I think, you know, who the, the lead candidates are for any of the parties is less of a decisive factor in German elections than it might be in certainly in American presidential elections, but I think also in, in British elections. Yeah, I think that in part, this question turns on what anybody thinks that the Christian Democrats are 
hoping to get out of the election and what I mean by that, how they see the possible outcomes and the possible coalitions after it. I mean, I think the point in which the comparison with Britain doesn't work is that there was a general election in Britain immediately prior to the pandemic that settled the question of Brexit that had completely dominated British politics for the previous three or four years. What we're going to see in in the election in Germany in September is the question of whether grand coalition politics, as it has hitherto been practised during the Merkel era, which is essentially where the most likely form of government was a grand coalition between the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats, whether that is coming to an end and whether it's going to be replaced by a grand coalition politics that revolves around the, the Christian Democrats and the Greens or whether there is a possibility that the Christian Democrats are going to be out of government. So this is a much more consequential German election than is easily addressed by having a straightforward status quo candidate as the Chancellor. I think that it's hard to avoid the conclusion that the Christian Democrats are running risks with having Laschet as a candidate. I think that's right. Can I just add one thing to that? I think it's worth underlining what what Helen has just said, which is that it's been quite interesting for me to follow this in the last few weeks, the sort of excitement that there is now about the German election and German politics. But when you take a step back and think about it, the excitement is really about the possibility, and it is just that, the possibility that the party that has run Germany for the last four electoral periods might not be leading Germany for a fifth electoral period. It's still possible. In fact, it's probably still the most likely outcome that you will have another Christian Democrat-led government, in other words, the fifth in a row. But just the fact there's a possibility, you know, real possibility that another party might be leading the government in Germany after September is sort of enough to to give this sense that German politics is really in flux. And I just think that's quite extraordinary that you have a kind of a system over the last 15 years or so where it's almost a kind of a form of sort of one party rule, albeit one party rule with other parties as junior coalition partners. Now, that may now be coming to an end, but I think it's worth just emphasising the context here. I want to come on a bit later to the other possibilities, because I think part of the excitement is also the possibility that the new government could be led by a Green. And certainly seen from the outside, that does seem like quite a radical departure. But let's talk about that in a, in a bit. Because Hans, I just want to pick up on what you said earlier about we maybe overinterpret the role of personalities in German politics, and there's something more structural and more party based going on. And yet it is the case, that it's not just that one party has been in charge, but one dominant personality, that is one dominant figure, Angela Merkel, has been there for it's 15 years now, isn't it? It's more than 15 years. And we do like a historical comparison on talking politics. In modern German history, leaving aside the, the Hitler years, there have been two other dominant figures of that kind, Bismarck and Adenauer, in a system that in some ways was geared against the domination by one personality. And in each case, I think it is true that someone who's been in power for that long, and this may extend to other political systems too, it's incredibly hard to arrange a kind of succession, both post-Bismarck and post-Adenauer. It was very difficult to re-establish the, the sort of stability for which those leaders stood in different ways. And certainly after Adenauer, I mean, my understanding of the last period of Adenauer's government is that they couldn't get rid of him because every time someone emerged as an alternative leader, Adenauer said, well, 
know, you need me to be here a bit longer to sort of smooth the transition. And the longer he was there, the harder it was for anyone to emerge from under his shadow. And so by the end, it was almost the sort of shadow in which no one could grow. And there's a bit of a feel like that with Merkel. After a lot of people have tried to emerge from her shadow and have failed, and now the candidate has been chosen, who you say is continuity Merkel. And history suggests that actually, not just a party that's been in power for that long, but emerging from a single person, the mother of the nation, Mutti, to a different kind of politics is incredibly difficult for a ruling party. And we should almost expect the next period to be much more unstable, because that transition is almost impossibly difficult to achieve. That's fascinating. So I don't know if we want to go back to Bismarck, because it's such a different period in German history. It wasn't super democratic back then. No. There was universal male suffrage, but still, I agree. It's a slightly different system. It is a fascinating comparison. Maybe we can circle back to that one. But in, in terms of the comparison with Adenauer, that is interesting. And, you know, it was very striking that when Laschet became the party leader a couple of months ago, I think the first reaction that lots of people had, including me, was was to think of the... Adenauer campaign slogan, keine experimenta, or no experiments. It was this sense of a sort of anti-risk candidacy by Laschet. In other words, don't try something new, don't take risks. And Willy Brandt, a subsequent German chancellor, sort of came up with a, a slogan that was precisely trying to say now it is the time to take more risks, particularly to be more democratic. So I think there is something around the the Adenauer comparison. Having said that, though, I think they're really different figures. I mean, they're comparable in the sense that they they both dominated German politics, as you've suggested, David, for for a sort of similar length of time. By the way, Helmut Kohl is probably the other figure that we might want to discuss, you know, Christian Democrat Chancellor who, who dominated German politics, again, for a similar length of time. But I think there are some pretty big differences between Adenauer and Merkel, partly in terms of the the situation that West Germany at that time found itself in. It's very, very different to the situation of the unified Germany now. And I think that that had some, some consequences for the kind of chancellor that Adenauer became. I mean, essentially, he was the environment in which he was operating was really one around West German weakness immediately after World War II. And the big objective for him was to rehabilitate Germany. That's a completely different context to the one in which Merkel found herself as Chancellor, particularly after the Euro crisis began in 2010, which was very much a context of of German power rather than German weakness. And then I think the second really big difference between Adenauer and Merkel is that Their style of leadership is different. So they did both dominate German politics for a similar length of time, but they did it in a very different way. And, you know, whereas Adenauer was a more dominant figure in in that sort of intellectual, political sense, I think the the way we should think about Merkel and her 16 years as, as chancellor is that she has sort of embodied a consensus that exists in Germany, but she's followed that consensus rather than leading it. Um, We can get into some of the specific cases where some people feel that she did take a stand and lead Germany, in particular the the refugee crisis. But I would argue that what she's done consistently is to follow German public opinion rather than to lead it. And that, I think, makes Merkel a very different figure from Adenauer. And it's also partly why I think the consensus could continue even after Merkel leaves office. 
And uh, Helen, I'm going to ask you which of these historical comparisons works for you, but it's true. I mean, coal is also there. I suppose in the back of my mind, when I think of coal, and this may be completely wrong, but because he transitions across the reunification of Germany, after all, he was originally chancellor of one country, and he ended up as chancellor of, of another. It feels more volatile, maybe it wasn't, but it feels more volatile than Adenauer and Merkel, where there's just this kind of father-mother-of-the-nation aspect to it, and the kind of steady-as-she-goes quality to their politics, whereas Cole, maybe Cole started off like that, but something about bridging 89, 90, 91 makes it feel like those years didn't quite have that continuity to them, but I may be wrong about that. Helen, which of these historical comparisons speaks to you? I think the Adenauer one is really interesting, both because of the ways in which it doesn't work and the ways in which I think that it that it does. I think that Hans is right that their political styles were very different from each other. I mean, there's one of Adenauer's biographers that described West Germany during the Adenauer years as effectively as an autocracy. I mean, he was an extraordinarily, for a democratic politician, had an autocratic style, and he had fought a rearguard action against his successor, Ludwig Erhard, becoming German Chancellor for five or six years before he finally left office. And even after he left office, he still remained, as I think I'm I'm saying, president of the party and was constantly trying to shackle Erhard afterwards. And I think it's quite difficult to imagine that Merkel is going to behave in the same way towards her successor. And she hasn't had somebody who has been the rival she's been trying to put down for years before. What is interesting, though, in the comparison is that these are moments of geopolitical change and significance for West Germany as Adenauer's leadership was coming to an end and now as Merkel's leadership was coming to an end because in the personality difference between Adenauer and Erhard there was also a pretty significant geopolitical difference in that Adenauer had moved German policy much closer to France under de Gaulle. He'd privately been in favour of de Gaulle's veto of Britain's application to join the European Economic Community. He wanted the economic version of Europe not to be Atlanticist, even though he was accepting as necessary NATO. Whereas Erhard was much more of an Atlanticist, he would have been quite happy for Britain to have been in the European Economic Community in the 1960s. And in the end, you could argue, I think it was the Atlanticist orientation of Erhard's foreign policy in the middle of the 60s, particularly in the way in which he dealt with the US over Vietnam, that ended up bringing his government down. And we then begin to see the start of grand coalition politics. It's going to turn West German foreign policy in the direction of Ostpolitik and a very different approach to the Cold War, a different approach to East Germany and the, the Soviet Union. So in that period that ends with Adenauer's fall end, so to speak, you're going to get an awful lot of turbulence that comes after. These big geopolitical dilemmas are there for the next German chancellor too, both in relation to Russia And if it's a Green Chancellor, then the Greens' position at the moment is to be opposed to Nord Stream 2, but also this time in relation to China and the question of how far Germany is going to prioritise its economic relationship with China and dealing with China over climate change with trying to repair Atlantic relations under Joe Biden's presidency. And these are not easily resolvable questions any more than the questions that West Germany faced in the middle of the 1960s were easily resolvable. I agree with you that there are these geopolitical challenges now. But do you not think that when you compare German politics in the Adenauer era, or even, you know, that grand coalition era that then leads to the Brandt government and and Ostpolitik, 
do you not think that at that time, the differences between the parties were much bigger? There was real debate about real alternatives in German foreign policy at that time. When Adenauer first pursued the what the Germans called the Westbindung, you know, which is the integration of the Federal Republic into the into the West, the SPD at that time was vehemently opposed to it. It was opposed, by the way, to European integration at the time. Then, similarly, when Brandt was Chancellor and he pursued Ostpolitik, the Christian Democrats were vehemently opposed to that. So much so that they hired uh, private detectives to try to discredit Willy Brandt. Now it feels to me, even as from the outside, it does seem as if Germany faces these difficult geopolitical choices that seem quite urgent and that Germany doesn't seem to be able to continue to sort of avoid indefinitely. Nevertheless, the consensus among all of the parties in Germany that could be part of the next coalition are basically fairly similar. So, you know, you're right, there are some differences between the Greens and the Christian Democrats on Russia in particular, also China to some extent. But to me, these feel like differences of, of nuance rather than a fundamental argument, for example, about whether Germany should be part of NATO or not. Insofar as the Greens have a different take on that to the Christian Democrats, it's about things like levels of defence spending and, and so on. But these are relatively small differences, it seems to me, compared to the big differences that used to exist in German foreign policy debates. No, I think you're absolutely right, Hans. And in particular, there's a great deal more consensus between the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats than there were about some of these questions in the 1960s. Obviously, the Social Democrats had moved from the position that they'd taken prior to 1958 when they had been against NATO. I think, though, that what is interesting is the ways in which, even where there is some consensus, I mean, if you take, for instance, the issue of NATO in the middle of the 1960s and the and the US relationship for Erhard, it wasn't that in being as Atlanticist as he was, that he was embracing a complete outlier position where NATO was concerned in the importance of the US relationship, but the question of the relationship with the US was still capable of bringing him down. And bringing about that shift into that, the beginning of the shift into the grand coalition politics that would lead when the SPD got to power, as you say, to us politics. So I think that the pressures that can be put by events on these hard geopolitical choices can be consequential, even if the initial differences between the parties are not, as you say, as they were. Though I do think the Greens are interesting in this respect, because although it's not a huge challenge to the consensus, it still is a more of a challenge to the consensus than has hitherto existed. And if we did just so to keep David happy about Bismarck, go back to the Bismarck comparison, <laughs> then obviously the end of Bismarck does represent what comes after there is a rather different approach to dealing with Germany's geopolitical dilemmas of the time. So I think that Germany's position at the centre of the continent of Europe, but if we think of it now in terms of Eurasia, the centre of Western Eurasia, if you um, like, does impose pretty difficult choices on it. And when you get changes in who gets to hold power at the centre, remembering, of course, that Germany is also, this present Germany is a federal state, it will reverberate in terms of the ways in which geopolitics interacts with German democratic politics. Very interesting. Can I have a go at the Bismarck comparison as well at some point? Briefly, yeah. <laughs> so I think where that comparison is quite interesting is if you if you draw an analogy between German unification in 1871 and German reunification in 1990. And I think there are, I've argued that there are some parallels between the sort of 
semi-hegemonic position that Germany finds itself in after both of those events. And there, you know, you have, you know, Bismarck and Kohl as the kind of unifying figures that, as you mentioned, David, straddle that transition from the sort of pre-unified Germany to the post-unified Germany. And then you can think of Merkel, I suppose, as being the sort of post coal figure in a somewhat analogous way to the way that after Bismarck, um, you know, you have a series of chancellors who struggle to deal with this new situation in which Germany finds itself. That is kind of an interesting way of thinking about the analogy between the two different eras and the figures of, of Merkel on the one hand and Bismarck on the other. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I just want to say one more thing by way of historical comparison, and then I want to get back to the Greens now. But I was also thinking it is generally true that in democratic systems, long-standing political leaders do create problems for their parties. It's an arbitrary thing, but people who are in power for more than 10 years, whether it's Blair or Thatcher, Nehru in India, but also Adenauer in this case, it's really hard then to manage a transition to something new, both to maintain continuity and also to create something new. But in a way, the shining exception to that, it's another way in which he's possibly exceptional in this story, is Cole, because after all, he did handpick Merkel. And though there was the Schroeder interlude, in the broad sweep of things, it was a remarkably successful transition which created both continuity and novelty. And I almost can't think of another analogy, maybe one of you can, where someone who's been in power for a long time nonetheless somehow manages, because Helen, as you were saying, Adenauer fought a kind of rearguard battle against his successor, as indeed did Blair. Thatcher tried to handpick her successor with probably disastrous consequences. And of course, political systems are different. Every system is different. But I can't think of another example of a long-standing leader who, if you leave out the interlude, does manage to engineer a transition through the person that that leader chose to be the successor. And in that way, it's a remarkable success story. I'm not quite um, convinced that Cole picked Merkel, handpicked her in, in exactly that way. He did promote her to some extent at the beginning of her political career for various reasons. But I think, if anything, actually, the designated successor to Cole was, was Wolfgang Schäuble, and then what happened was that there was this party financing scandal in 2000 that really ended Cole's political career, but also had sort of collateral damage on, on Wolfgang Schäuble because he'd been Cole's right-hand man for so long and, and was implicated in it. And then where Merkel comes into the picture actually is to, is to stab Cole in the back. She's the one that, that really turns on, on Cole publicly. And so, you know, in retrospect, it may seem as if there was this transition from, from Cole to Merkel, but it was quite rough, actually. Isn't it correct as well that Merkel didn't get to stand as the candidate in 2002, that someone from the Christian Social Union stood as the candidate? That's right. It was Edmund Stoiber in 2002, yes. And so actually, that 
even leaving aside the issue of the fact that it was Merkel who finished coal off, Merkel's start in this was pretty inauspicious. And it wasn't, there's such a gap in that sense between the end of coal and the beginning of Merkel that I think it doesn't quite work with the other comparisons that you were making. So it's a good example, therefore, of how the blurring effects of hindsight, given that I think Merkel still certainly outside has this reputation as someone who was dragged from obscurity, Easter German obscurity, by Helmut Kohl, who spotted something in her. And then, hence, as you describe, once you get into the detail of it, so seen from a kind of decades-long perspective, there looks like here's this very, seen from the outside, unexceptional politician who is somehow anointed with something that allows her to rise. Then you get an almost Shakespearean interlude where there's a certain amount of backstabbing and everything else. And yet when you take that big step back, it looks like, after all, without Cole and without Cole identifying her as at least something, something more significant than she appeared to be, she would have been nothing. And then you get that sort of what looks like that remarkable story, this party through these two figures, one of whom found the other before being knifed by the other. And, you know, it's not the Gordon Brown story. It's, it's not the John Major story. I know it's different political systems. It's not post-Bismarck, post-Adenauer, post-De Gaulle, where people struggle to assert themselves from out of the shadow of the person who promoted them. This is one of those rare cases where, with all the mess that comes in between, one leader finds another and the country basically is then governed by one of those two for the best part of, what, now four decades. It's remarkable, but I completely take your point. Once you go into the detail, it looks much more conventionally like a fight between people who may once have got on and then fell out and there's scandal and all the rest. And it's not even clear to me that Cole had Merkel in mind as a potential successor. She was his protégé, but the way that he famously referred to her as Das Mädchen or the girl, you know, was quite patronising. I think something to do with her being a woman, something to do with her being from the east of, of Germany, from the former GDR. But there was something about the way that Cole described her that that sort of didn't necessarily feel like he was preparing her to succeed him, but more that she was almost a kind of tokenistic kind of figure that, you know, could be part of his cabinet and that he could promote without her really being seen as a serious um, potential successor. I just think the other thing we should remember is that what Cole presided over was essentially the the rule of the Christian Democrats with the coalition partner of the, the Free Democrats. That was only been a tiny bit of the time in which, a small bit of the time, I should say, in which Merkel's been in power, that Merkel's presided over essentially grand coalition politics. And she has shifted the Christian Democrats to a position that in some ways I think is quite unrecognisable from the one that, uh, the version of Christian democracy that Cole pushed. That's good. That's why these historical comparisons are good, because I get to learn what the real story is. Okay, the Greens. Uh, So we also have another, again, Taking your point, Hans, that German politics is not quite as personalised as we might think, but the Greens have gone with Annalena Baerbock, who is different from conventional German politicians. And there's clearly, I think, strategically or tactically, some kind of gamble on her personality, isn't there? That she's an appealing political figure. She's a breath of fresh air. What's the broader strategy for the Greens? Where, Where do the Greens hope to be in six months' time, do you think, apart from in power? Well, I think they do hope to be in power. And in a sense, I think they hope to be in power with the Christian Democrats. And that's the 
I think the most striking thing about the evolution of the Greens in the last 20 years or so, and it actually follows directly on from what Helen was just saying about the way that the Christian Democrats have have changed under Merkel. So, you know, in the pre-Merkel era, you had basically two blocks in German politics, a sort of centre-left block and a centre-right block. And with the emergence of, you know, the Greens, that had become a little bit more complicated than the party system that had existed in Germany, you know, until about the 70s. But nevertheless, there was continuity in the sense that you had two blocks. And so the the centre-left block was the Social Democrats and the Greens, who were natural coalition partners. And then you had the Christian Democrats and the Free Democrats on the right, and they were natural coalition partners. And I think what the Merkel era has done has sort of brought that to an end. And part of what that involved, as as Helen said, was that the Christian Democrats have shifted, particularly on sort of cultural, social questions. They have moved to the centre. And that's made them it's made it more possible for them to be in a coalition with the Greens. But then conversely, also, the Greens have transformed from the days of the Red-Green Coalition, which came to an end in 2005, where, as I say, the Greens were the natural coalition partner for the Social Democrats, and the Social Democrats were their preferred coalition partner. Now, it's really not clear whether the Greens would prefer to be in a coalition with the Social Democrats or the, the Christian Democrats. And if anything, you would have to say that certainly for some of the leading figures in the Greens now, they would prefer to be in a coalition with the Christian Democrats. So, you know, in very simple terms, what I think has happened is that the Greens have moved to the right, particularly on economic policy questions, to the point where they are the the natural coalition partners or one of the natural coalition partners for the Christian Democrats. So to come full circle again, I think it sort of illustrates how there's been this kind of convergence in German politics during the Merkel era over the last 15, 16 years, where these three or four parties that have the potential to be in the next German government have all just sort of converged. And so, you know, even when you don't have a grand coalition, so for example, if there were to be a green-black coalition of the Greens as the senior coalition partner with the Christian Democrats as the junior coalition partner, I think you're looking broadly at a German government that is not that different from the grand coalition that we've had for the last 15, 16 years. I would agree with that. And I think that the the geopolitical question perhaps pushes the Greens more towards the Christian Democrats than it does towards the, the Social Democrats, particularly over the Russia question. Obviously, Merkel herself has remained very wedded to Nord Stream 2. And it's not that she's been willing to pursue a particularly confrontational policy with Putin certainly over any matters to do with energy. But I think that there is at least some people in the Christian Democratic Party who have got concerns around the Russia relationship, including in relation to Nord Stream 2, who will be easier for the the Greens to ally with, whereas the commitment to the Russian energy relationship, I think, is more structural on the social democratic side. How much do you think and I'm, I'm thinking here of, it's bizarre what's happened in France this week, this letter that was written by a group of retired generals, but with hair-raising language about the threat to France, the threat to the nation, uh, the possibility of civil war, a kind of throwback again to a French politics of the 50s and 60s. Who knows how seriously to take it? I suspect not that seriously, but Marine Le Pen, who looks like she's a plausible candidate for the presidency again next year, is the one senior French politician who has not disowned this letter. Relative to French politics, do German politicians and does the German public 
frame some of these arguments against that. I mean, there's there are all these geopolitical questions that Helen has raised, but there's also a context of European politics and both stability and instability in other places. Is there an appeal for a steady-as-she-goes approach for Germany relative to France? I mean, the language of French politics, including from Macron, is so much more grandiose, existential, and over-the-top than anything you get from German politicians. Could that be part of the framing here, that there is an appeal for the German public in a politics which is much less hysterical than French politics? I think that is how a lot of people in Germany think about their own politics. And this, in turn, I think, has a lot to do with the Nazi past and the sort of perceived lessons of the Nazi past in Germany. But I think I think a lot of Germans do think, when they look not just at France, but I think at the whole of the rest of, the, of Europe, including, by the way, the UK, they, they do see themselves as being a sort of anchor of stability and that there's a certain kind of maturity about German politics that other European countries like France and the UK don't have. I think that does come through in in the way that Germans talk about their role in in Europe in particular. There is this sense in which Germans like to think of themselves as representing stability and a kind of a mature politics. And again, I think this this is part of what the Merkel consensus has been about. There's a certain kind of, there's not just of depoliticization, but there's a certain kind of pride in depoliticization. I think that the issue of relations with France is always important, both in German elections and in the, the transitions of power. If you go back to the substance of what Adenauer and Erhardt were so bitterly divided about, France was at the centre of that and the attitude that each of them took to de Gaulle and what and how de Gaulle thought geopolitically. If you go back to the 2002 election when the Social Democrat Green Coalition ended up staying in power, the question of the relationship with France over the Iraq war became a very important part of the aftermath of that election. And Macron had got an awful lot resting on the outcome of the last German election. And when it looked like the Free Democrats were going to be in the coalition, the initial coalition discussions that took place, then Macron was aghast at that because he thought that was the end of his plans for the the Eurozone. I think if we make a comparison between that election and this election, there's been a, a shift across the board in German opinion towards Macron's position on the Eurozone, the pandemic and the European Union Recovery Fund have brought that about. But if we look at the kinds of questions that are raised by the the issues, as you said, David, in that letter and the relationship between European countries and Islam and also geopolitical approach of France in the Mediterranean and in North Africa, we see really deep differences, I think, between the French and the, the German positions and these are going to be part of the contested politics in both countries over the next few years. Do you think in a way, so you said Macron had a lot hanging on the last German election, this German election could be all elections are potentially consequential and it could make a big difference but as Hans has described it, it's a difference within a relatively narrow frame. Will all German politicians be do you think increasingly anxious about the next French presidential election as the event that could really destabilise Europe? Yeah, I think that's the part of the context of the last German election in that respect. If you look at the timing came, it was about four or five months, I think, after the, the French election and the idea that Macron wanted to push to the, the Germans was this presidency of mine has to be successful because the alternative 
is Marine Le Pen. And that just can't um, happen. So effectively, he was saying, if you don't make the European Union or the Eurozone in particular work in ways that help me, then disaster will ensue. And he's certainly in a position to try to make that argument. I think the difference is that the world is really quite different again than it was in 2017. And the areas in which France and Germany disagree, and I'd say Turkey has become quite central to that, at least in geopolitical terms, are actually now significantly more than they were back in 2017, where it was quite focused on the issue of Eurozone reform. Hans, do you want to have the last word on this, do you think? Germans are more worried about France than the French are worried about Germany? I think they're probably both worried about each other in different ways. In in fact, I I think I would flip it around. I I think actually that the French are more worried about Germany than Germans are about France. There is among the German political class some of this sense of French politics is a mess. But I don't think actually that German voters think about it that much. Why are the French still worried about Germany? I mean, in a way, for the the reasons that that Helen has already said, which is that there is this sense that given the the context of of the Eurozone and German policy within the Eurozone, it has been very difficult, I think, for France to solve some of its um, economic problems. My impression is that there's a growing sense in France that France is under pressure to take a more confrontational approach to Germany on some of these institutional and economic questions around the the Eurozone. Whereas the Germans, I think in general, I mean, Helen is absolutely right. There was this moment after the last presidential election in France, where I heard a lot of people in Berlin sort of saying, okay, we, we we sort of get it now that we have to do everything we can to support Macron and make Macron's presidency a success. Because if we don't, Le Pen might become president in five years' time. The problem is that there was very little follow-through on that, at least for the first few years after Macron uh, got elected. And and German officials and and think tankers and and politicians that I talked to about this would sort of say, well, look, there's just nothing we can do. The French have to solve their economic problems themselves. Um, There's nothing we can really do to help them. We can't, for example, rethink the Eurozone fiscal rules. Um, That would be a disaster. That would lead to the end of the euro. So there was this sense that they sort of reached this conclusion that they needed to support Macron, but there was actually nothing that they could they could really do. Now, then what happened last year was the pandemic increased the pressure massively on Germany, and that then led to the recovery fund. But as I think Helen has said on previous podcasts, and, and I've written as well, I mean, I, I think a lot of the questions, uh, the fault lines around the Eurozone are going to now come back with the politics of um, the recovery fund and how you spend that money and and how you detach conditionality to that funding. And also the question of when you go back to the EU's fiscal rules, these things are sort of looming. And so I think a lot of those fault lines and arguments um, that go back to the beginning of the euro crisis in 2010 are going to be coming back in in a slightly different form sometime pretty soon. And one last big historical comparison, and you can give both give a very short answer to this if you want, but it's, it's almost become a bit of a cliche that as people think about the world coming out of the pandemic, economic recovery, that we're heading into the roaring 20s, that there's going to be a lot of sort of frothy activity, a lot of cultural dislocation, possibly a certain amount of inflation and other things too. The roaring 20s mean one thing in Britain and America, but the roaring 20s mean something quite different in Germany. Is there any background anxiety there too? Is there the possibility that something else that will reassert itself is Germany's 
bulwark position against inflation? I think that there's no doubt that there's going to be disagreements if and when inflation appears about how to deal with it within the eurozone. And that goes to the centre of the problem that existed at the beginning of the eurozone crisis back in 2010, that the European Central Bank was set up in the 1990s on the basis of a a treaty with quite strict rules about what the ECB was for and all the underlying assumptions about those rules was that inflation was a problem and that the pressures that might produce inflation always must be kept under control and they should be kept under control by monetary policy. And when it came to the Eurozone crisis, which is a very different kind of crisis than an inflationary crisis, the rules couldn't adjust. And so essentially the rules had to be navigated around in ways that tried not to draw too much attention to the fact that the rules were rather redundant. And we end up with Mario Draghi's ECB rather than the ECB that had been created under the Maastricht Treaty. Now, I think that there's been much more buy-in in Germany to Mario Draghi's ECB than one could possibly have expected if we started as one's reference point, the German position in the 1990s. But I don't think that that translates into saying that if there actually were some more inflation again, the German position and the French position might not depart pretty radically from each other quite quickly and that the ECB would be stuck in the middle of trying to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there there clearly is fear about inflation in Germany, although I think that often gets sort of instrumentalised in German political debates. It's really, I think, often to do with other real interests, you know, for example, the interests of, of German savers, rather than a sort of collective memory of hyperinflation. But I think actually the more important than that fear in Germany about a sort of booming economy and and inflation as a consequence. I think actually my sense is that the more pervasive fear is more about some structural challenges to the German economy. In other words, not that things are going to bounce back almost too well, but rather that they're not going to bounce back because of there are some long-term concerns about the future of the German car industry in particular, then there's the the whole question of the shift in the Chinese economy, which may mean that China won't be the export market for Germany in future that, that it has been for the last couple of decades and it's been a big part of why the German economy has been successful. At least the, the export sector has been successful in the last couple of decades. And then more broadly, this kind of fear about the geopolitical situation, in particular, the strategic competition between China and the United States, the consequences of that for globalization, uh, possible decoupling and and so on. I think these are the fears that many people in in Germany have that I think are probably more pervasive than fear about um, looming inflation. We will be doing more about France on Talking Politics and soon we're going to be talking about the elections in the UK, including the very important elections to the Scottish Parliament. Next week, We're talking to Michael Lewis. As part of our book season, we've chosen a few books that we really want to talk about, and this is definitely one. Michael Lewis on the pandemic and who saw it coming. In a couple of weeks, on Tuesday the 11th, I'm going to be talking to Pankaj Mishra as a round-off to the History of Ideas series. We're going to be discussing the books I talked about and the many that I didn't, including from other parts of the world than Europe. It's an LRB event, and you can sign up if you just follow the link on Twitter at tppodcast underscore or in our show notes. I'd love to see people there. 
My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.